Hi, I'm Regana Ty- I'm Regana Ty- <laughs> you, you truly embody the character. <laughs> Never let go. <laughs> Let's try that again. Okay. Hi, I'm Roderick Garth. You may remember me as Regana Taj on DS9, the Starface Alien. I'm talking to Matt on Trek Untold. to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week's guest is someone who I'm pleased to share with you today because, quite simply, it was just a lot of fun for me to talk to him. We nerded out about movies, about TV shows, and of course, about Star Trek. And this performer had some important acting advice and real heavy life lessons that he has gifted to all of us during this episode. Today on Trek Untold, we're meeting with Roderick Garr. Roderick played Regana Tosh on the fourth season DS9 episode, Hippocratic Oath where he made some shifty plans with Quark that were foiled by both Worf and Odo. But beyond Star Trek, you may have seen Roderick in shows and films like Drop Squad, Sister Sister, Smart Guy, Mind Games, Living Single, In the House, Law and & Order, and more, including some work in the theater that we're going to chat about today, and also some behind-the-scenes work as a producer. Roderick is a storyteller extraordinaire, and has had some experiences that are very different from mine, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners out there. So I hope you'll enjoy the stories about navigating through Star Trek and Hollywood from his one-of-a-kind point of view. So with all that said, let's get ready to meet the man under that Regana Tosh makeup as we chat with the inimitable Roderick Garr. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at trekuntold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us the other side of the screen, all the way from Buffalo, New York, we're joined by Mr. Roderick Gar. Roderick, how's it going today? Excellent, man. Great day. Great day. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's rare that I get to talk to somebody who's actually not only just in my time zone, but also in my state. So uh, kudos right away to you for that. <laughs> oh, man, no problem. No problem. Because that was the whole thing. I was like, just want to let you know I'm on the East Coast. Cause I thought you were on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> no, thankfully, we're, we're both New Yorkers. So that's good. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, nothing like it. Nothing like it. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, Roderick, I want to ask you the first question I ask all my guests on this show, and that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it? Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't really a Trekkie. However, I have cousins and a brother that were all into all my cousins, older cousins they were into. It. My brother was a Trekkie, so I gleaned everything through them. And, you know, I saw the show, of course, a couple times, but... You know, I was younger than them. So, you know, they were older. Like, my brother's like six years older than me, and some of my cousins are four and five years old. So they were really, really into it. And so, you know, I would be like, oh, okay, that's cool, you know. But then as I got older, I understood the significance of Star Trek and then, like, would watch the reruns and go like, oh, that's cool. And especially when they started doing the um, the new versions of like oh, wow, that's kind of cool. And so I would get a chance to see things from time to time. So you mentioned significance of Star Trek, but what, what was the significance for you? What, what do you? When you think about Star Trek, what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, Nichelle Nichols. I mean, she... Late, great Nichelle. I, I mean, for me, to see someone that looked like me on television at that time, that was big. Hmm. That was really big for me. And she was beautiful. You know, she dressed, I mean, she was dressed like everybody else. She wasn't separate. You know, she was in the crew with everybody. So to me, I thought that was so significant. And every time I saw, I was just like, oh my goodness, that's just, I was just so excited about seeing her, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid. That was my main, that was my, the significance for me. I'm sure you probably already know the story about Nichelle and why she stayed on Star Trek, right? You know oh, yes, and Martin Luther yeah. King. Yes, I've heard this story. story a million times. And every time I hear it, it takes my breath away because when she tells that story, you know, she said she was, you know, she thought it was some somebody else, oh, some Star Trek fan. And, you know, she said, oh, whatever Star Trek fan, he going to have to wait because my leader's standing over Dr. King's here. So, and he's like, I'm your fan. And then for him to, and and what a lot of people need to understand for an actor, for someone to come up to you, and especially Dr. King to come to her and say the things he said to her in the significant way he said them to her, that is just, she said it took her breath away. It would, it would have done the same thing to me. And, and that's the thing. I've had situations like that where someone had to remind me of the significance of something that I did because we as actors, we do it and then we move on, you know, and continue. And and then we're always looking at the next thing. But we have to understand a lot of times that when, when we do something significant, other people are watching and it affects them. And we don't always... We are not always, let me say, we are not always aware Hmm. as to the magnitude of what something might see. Because when I was a young boy 
And I saw somebody that looked like, well, when I was a young boy and I saw Sammy Davis Jr. on TV when I was five years old, I saw him and I looked at the TV and he was on the Ed Sullivan show, if I'm not mistaken. And I pointed at the TV and I said, I want to do that. And just also to wrap up that note, Michelle, too, I just in case you don't know this part of the story either, you know, she also campaigned a lot for NASA to get more yes. people, more black people yes. in space. And that led yes. to Mae Jemison joining up and Mae Jemison, oddly enough, ended up on Star Trek eventually. So exactly. I saw, yes, and I, I've seen all the pictures of them together. Yo, yes, I think, oh, that's it's so significant, so yeah. significant, so significant. Well, let's just jump in now to uh, the secret origin story of Roderick Gar. And I feel like you just teased a little part of the story of what I'm going to ask you here. But uh, And we already mentioned a little bit of it. But yeah, so Roderick, tell me, where were you born? Who were your parents? And what did they do? And what did little Roderick want to be when he grew up? What did little Roddy want to be? Well, I actually, it was little Steve. Oh, uh, okay. yeah, well, see, my full name is Roderick Stephen Gar. The story is um, my mom and dad had a bet. So it was a boy my dad would name it girl my mom would name us of course i show up and my father says roderick and so then my mother's like i want to name the baby and so he says okay you can give him his middle name so she says steven but s-t-p-h-e-n mm. and so i was a i was a preemie so i was five pounds flat oh wow and so when my mom and dad had me you know Roderick is this long, I'm this little, and they're like, this doesn't fit. So they, they nicknamed me Stevie to start off. Um, I was born in uh, Buffalo, New York. My mother's name is Jeanette Helen Gar. My father's name was Leonard Jerome Gar. Um, like I said, when I was you know, a little kid, five years old, saw Sammy Davis Jr. on TV, said I wanted to do that. And that's what I looked for. So then fast forward to me when I was 11 years old, Sammy Davis Jr. was coming in town. And in the suburbs of Buffalo, they have they have uh, this entertainment venue called Melody Fair. Unfortunately, it's no longer there. But at the time, it was an uh, outdoor amphitheater with a tent on it. And the significant thing about Melody Fair was that it was in the round. So it had a stage that went around in circles. So Sammy Davis comes to town. I bug my mother and father. We got to go. 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 They know I'm crazy about him because anytime he comes on TV, they were like, oh, you guys on TV, you know, you come, so come. So we get tickets, we go. And of course, this is in the 70s, early 70s. And uh, we have the Polaroid camera with the bulb and everything. You know, my dad's got the whole Megillah. So we go out there. And during one section of the show, Mr. Davis goes around, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, at this point of the show, if anyone would like to come down and take a picture, please feel free to do so. And so my dad looks at me and says, do you want to take a picture? And I'm like, of course I want to go take a picture. And so he gives me the camera, he sets me up and makes sure that everything's just right. And so I get up and I'm, I'm a little chubby kid, and so I waddle down to the stage. And the thing with him, with the stage, it was it's in the round. So as I was coming around, he was coming around and passed me. And so he was going the other way. And then I took the picture. And of course, it was a big flash, you know, as they were. And so he was going in the opposite direction. So then I'm walking back to my seat after I take the picture. He goes, 
wait, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it. Stop, 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 stop. He stops the whole show. He says, who just took that picture? And then I go, I did. And he goes, how could you get a good picture of me, baby? I was going in the opposite direction. <laughs> and then he says, he said, where's your father? I said, he's over there. He said, go give him the camera. He said, come here. He pulls me up on stage and he starts talking to me. And uh, he just talks to me. And the funny thing was the the garb of the day were hot pants. Mm. I happened to have on a, a pair of hot pants. And so did he. But he had a shirt with a vest on. And I just had a nice shirt. And so we're talking. And he asked me, would you like to meet my daughter? And of course, a nervous kid. I said, no. But we talked a little while. And then so he said, all right, let your dad take a picture of us. And so he said, put your arm around me, baby. Come on. And so we took the picture. And I went back, sat down. It's a wonderful experience. Uh, fast forward uh, to 1981 when I'm going going to Howard, going to Howard as as an actor, going you know to study theater. We go back again to see him. Of course, the show is wonderful. After the show's over, go backstage once again to see if I could get the program that we had with the two pictures and the ticket stubs to get signed. Unfortunately. The gentleman at the door misunderstood and he thought that I wanted to give it to Mr. Davis and that wasn't the case. I wanted him to sign it. He was like, oh, Mr. Davis is kind of tired. Say la vie. But what happened through going back from that point, I I was in music school. I'm classically trained. I'm a classically trained vocalist. I've been singing professionally since I was 15 years old. Um, one of the things, uh, what happened after I started going to music school, I, my mother, one of my mother's friends, she heard about a workshop they had at one of the local, uh, local centers, the Langston Hughes Center. They were having an acting workshop and, you know, they knew that I was possibly interested in that. So I got the information and I went. And at the end of the week of the workshop, the gentleman, Ed Smith, who was a professor out at the University of Buffalo, your father would be familiar with UB, um, he pulled my mom aside and he said, you know, your son has talent. You really need to get him some formal training. So then, of course, it was a family discussion. And my parents asked me if that's something that I wanted to do. And I said, yes, very much so. So, you know, there was the decision to, well, do I want to do driver's ed? Or do I want to take acting classes? And I said, no, I would rather take acting classes. And just so I get an idea too, uh, you know, were your parents in the creative field or or were they doing other things? And how, how I guess it sounds like they're very encouraging of you. So I'm wondering what they did. Okay. This will be a very interesting thing for you to hear. Uh, my father is from Louisville, Kentucky. My father growing up, uh, in high school, he was he graduated from Central High School in 1942. He got a scholarship to college because he was a graphic artist. Okay. However, however, in 1942, in Louisville, Kentucky, a black man wasn't supposed to be a graphic artist. And the thing is, he didn't play football. And so they took my father's college scholarship and gave it to someone who played football. So then, fast forward to my mom. She, I think it was, uh, was graduating from high school in 52. 
And um, she went to Fosdick Maston High School. She was also a graphic artist. And she was on the advanced pro. She was on the advanced track. And one of her instructors, I do believe, was, you know, wasn't happy with her being in the program and started to harass her, which she eventually quit, ended up quitting. So what ended up happening is that both of my parents are um, unrequited artists. Hmm. And so I do believe because of that, they did encourage me in any creative endeavors that I ever wanted to do. That's really interesting. And, uh, you know, telling me this experience right now, too, I, I'm wondering how much of that had an impact on your decision to go to Howard University, since you mentioned that as well. Whoa. Uh, a big, I mean, well, I don't know. Are you familiar with Buffalo, New York? Only a little bit. You know, I went to school upstate for a few years also, so I have an idea of what it's like up there. Uh, but not in time period you were there, unfortunately. Yeah. Can't time um, travel yet, sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you know, of course. <laughs> well, give, let's let's give you an example. When, after I left here in 81 to go away to school, I read in the magazine that Buffalo was the ninth most segregated city in America. Wow. And when I heard, when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's about right. And just to remind so now, me, this is New York too, which is you know considered to be more of the one of the more progressive states. But people forget that's the five boroughs. We're not talking about once you get yeah, upstate. Yeah, this is Western New York. Yeah, we're like Canada by Canada, <laughs> and uh, you know, so as you know, as of June when or what was it May when the shootings happened here, the statistic came out that we're the now we moved up to the sixth most segregated city in America, and so it wasn't an easy place to grow up. Um, I had to fight for a lot of things. I was denied many things that were supposed to come my way. And I, unlike a lot of others, I went to a lot of schools where, give you an example, when I started going to private school, I was the only black male in sixth grade. Mm. So, you know, I had to fight a lot and I had to endure a lot of slights and even, You know, even when I get on the same platform as the Ivy League people and fighting them toe to toe, still in the end, I get usurped. No, but then, but see, but here's the thing, having a good family, teachers and stuff in my corner, knowing that at the time that I was superior. So understanding, and and, and because it was like something that happened And uh, my music teacher, Mr. Hillier, it was like, it was in my sophomore year. And I lost out on something, uh, on a contest that I should have won. And I was really upset. I came back to music school that Monday evening. I told Mr. Hillier and everything that happened. He just sat there very cavalier and listened to everything I had to say. And he said, well, Roger, you have a decision to make. He said, either you set your mores on Buffalo or you set your mores on the world. Hmm. And I was like, got it. And so then I knew that it was very important for me to leave. And when that decision came, I first wanted to go to NYU, USC, and things of that nature. But then upon further deliberation, I had to really think about 
if I'm going to go to school, I want to go to a school where I'm going to be able to actually work. Mm. And I had to, so I started to rethink, you know, where I, you know, what schools I could go to that were more liberal and I would get a chance to actually display my talents and I would be nurtured and things of that nature. Um, and my, my aunt, my aunt Gail, my mom's younger sister, you know, the, the cool aunt, <laughs> she, uh, she did me a favor that I didn't even understand. She, we, uh, I was, you know, I would go spend my summers in DC. And this one time we were like, she's like, cause she was a, she was the head researcher for Meet the Press at the time. And she said, okay, we're going to hang out for the day. You're going to, I mean, you're going to go to work with me. We're going to go to lunch. We're going to do a little shopping in Georgetown. And then she goes, oh, you know, you know, Howard's in the neighborhood. Why don't, you know, why don't we just drop by? How convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know I was being set up. Didn't, didn't know. Didn't know. Didn't know. Beautiful. Now, Matt, let me let me paint the picture for you. A beautiful August Saturday. Sun is shining. School has started. So the students, the population are frolicking about. There's music playing. They're girls. Oh, gorgeous, 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 gorgeous girls all around. And I'm just like, and my aunt's like, my, she sees my neck snapping around. She said, well, you know, we don't have to rush. We could stroll. And I said, yes, 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 we should stroll. We should stroll. And I get back to, I come back to Buffalo and I say, tell Mr. Ha Mr. Hilliard, I was, who was my music teacher, he was the head of the music school I was going to. And I said, Mr. Hilliard, I just went to Howard. It's amazing. He said, well, you know, Roderick, they have the number one theater program in America. And I said, they do? Really? He said, oh, yes, many people have come out of there. I was like, oh, okay. And I did my research and spread out Debbie Allen, Felicia Rashad, you know, uh, uh, Owen Dodson, so, you know, so many more that, that I can't even, you know, care, can't even name right now. And so that was one of the reasons why I went there, because I wanted to go to a school where I knew I could get a chance to work. And going to Howard, Matthew was the best decision I ever made in my life. So on that note, now you are at Howard University and I really want to hear what you learned. Let's just say, what's one lesson that you learned that stuck with you? Because I can't say I've ever spoke to anybody on the show who's attended that school. So uh, I'd love to hear what, what piece that school you brought back with you after your four years or however many years it was you were there. I was there for five years. Five years, okay. Is that, is that uh, a master's yes. program? No, 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 no. It was undergrad. Okay. Um, but it was a hard, it was a hard program. Um, uh, I ended up, well, also I ended up doing a minor too. And, and so, but then I, cause I, I also did some different things. I also took some grad courses while I was still in undergrad too. Okay. But to give you what you want about Howard, like I said, it was the best decision I ever made. Um, that school let me know that I was loved, cared for. It was discipline. It was hard discipline, sometimes very rough and critical that would make you doubt yourself. However, if it hadn't been for the, the trials and tribulations that I went through there, they prepared me for the business because what I realized after going there, because 
one of the things that happens when you go to Howard, especially if you're in the drama department, you're in a bubble for the time that you're there. And it's very concentrated and it's very intense, extremely intense. And not everybody makes it out of there. I can remember the multitudes of people that started with me my freshman year, but then the under 10 people that actually graduated with a degree, you know, from when I started. Um, It was, okay, so Howard is a microcosm of what the world is. Uh, One of the first lessons I learned my freshman year I was nominated. Um, I did the first, I got in the first show of the year. I was in the third show of the year. Plus, I got cast in um, another uh, professional theater company, the DC Black Repertory within town. So I was nominated for freshman of the year. <clears throat> now, everything that, plus, I was in the choir. Plus, I, I was sang in the choir, plus I was in the chapel choir, which was a special magical group that sang every Sunday morning at the Rankin Chapel, which was a paid position. So I was doing a lot of different things. However, I did not win. Actually, what happened was, um, ended up, who later became my frat brother, ended up winning the, uh, the prize. And the lesson that I learned from that was just because you should win does not mean that you will win. Mm. And that I have to have the intestinal fortitude to know within my own self what this work is like. Not having to depend upon accolades like that, awards, to tell me that I'm doing a good job. Um, What then I learned also was to also take on good mentors. And I got a lot of good mentors um, at Howard. Dr. Jeffrey Newman, who was uh, the chairman of our department. Dr. Carol Singleton, who who was over the theater history <clears throat> excuse me, uh, theater history portion of, of the drama department, Joe Selman, who was over stage construction, uh, Ed Love, who was a master sculptor and artist in the, um, in the art department, and Jeff Donaldson, who another who a master artist within the art department, Frank Smith, another one. So I sought out very good mentors and, and also... Joe Walker, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, playwright who wrote The River Niger, who was one of my professors and another one of my uh, one of my champions and another one of my great mentors. So what I what I was able to happen was I made myself open to these men to mentor me and how to be an artist, how to live um, an ethical. uh, Principled and driven existence and having to understand that just because there's not a lot of hoopla around you, that does not mean you're not on the right path. Because many times, you know, 
things are discovered in the dark. They're not always in the light, you know, and you have to be, I learned that I had to be aware of being disciplined of the craft that I was pursuing. And, you know, there can be, you know, sometimes you, you just don't get it sometimes. And sometimes it takes a long time to really, to get to that place where you're actually, as an actor, recreating life. And so it takes a while to get to that. So like I said, I opened myself up to mentorship, which has helped me along the way, which also taught me that being mentored, then I in turn have to also mentor the ones coming behind me. It's good lessons to learn. And, you know, because this is a Star Trek show, I got to bring it back to Star Trek for a second. Of course, of course. Of course course I do. Yeah, because that that first story you mentioned, it reminded me of, like, I think my favorite Picard quote, which is when he's talking to Data in uh, one of these episodes and uh, he tells Data, it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. Mm. That's very much reminded me of that. It's a great quote. And that's, you know, you you tell me it's just living proof of that, you know? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Love that. So, Roderick, do you remember what your first professional gig was on a television screen? Ooh. Going back. <laughs> okay. Um, first television gig. Speak up, speak out, learning to say no to drugs. <laughs> it was a piece I booked. I was still living in, in D.C. after graduating from Howard. I do believe we shot it in... 1980, ooh, yeah, that's totally, yeah, 1987, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, summer of 1987, it showed on PBS, and then it showed on PBS a couple of times after that, that would be my first on TV, but I booked a film, but I booked a film when I was still in college in 1985. And the name of the film was called Good to Go, which later turned, as it went to DVD, Short Fuse. I'll let you choose, then, since uh, Good to Go was the first film role, and the PBS thing was the first TV role. So I'll let you decide which one you want to have here. But uh, what is something you learned being on a set for the very first time? Something that was totally new to you. It's something that stuck with you and stayed with you. Wow. Um, okay. From the PBS piece... Calm down. <laughs> um, you know, young actors think that you got bring so much energy and, and, and talking so fast. Just like, and I just remember hearing my voice, and it was up so high. I was talking so, and I'm like, it was just like, dude, what are you doing? Stop, please stop it. So that was the one thing I learned from that piece. Um, the one thing I learned from Good to Go that, you know, because I, I, because Harris Eulin was in that mm. film, also Art Garfunkel. And I started watching, you know, other people like Harris Eulin. I like watched what he, what he did. So that's when I started really focusing in on, on watching another actor work on set besides just watching a movie and understanding everything that's going on outside of this, this one little frame and understanding that, you know, the lesson was 
theaters out here, television's in here, film is here. And shout out to Harris Hewlin, who is also a Star Trek alumni. One of the best episodes of DS9 duet. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And good guy, too. Good guy. I, good to yes. hear that, yeah. Very nice man. Very nice man. I know he doesn't remember me, but he was he was nice to me. He was, he, you know, I was, you know, I, I was like, what, 23 years old? I was just like, hi, how you doing? You know, and he was like, how are you? <laughs> he was very, but he was very nice. He was very nice, man. So, Roderick, uh, you have worked with the entire Maori family. I'm going to talk some sitcoms now. So you did Sister, Sister with Tia and Tamara, and then you did yes. Smart Guy with Taj. So, yeah, yes. I found both those episodes. I was able to watch them and find where you were. So <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear what memories you have of being on that set. And I, I know you really didn't do too many scenes directly with them, uh, especially in Smart Guy. You weren't really in a scene with Taj. But any memories right. you have from those shows? And I just want to make a note here, too. It is just really cool that you did two shows with the Maori family. That's just, like, such a fun little fact. Very nice people. Very, very, the, the girls, wonderful. But see, actually, something which that you don't know, I was actually a stand-in on Sister Sister for a little while. Ah. So that's how that particular who, who role for? came up. I was a, st- a stand-in for Tim Reed. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I, I previously, I had done standing work for Bill Cosby in New York. And so when I had come out to L.A., one of the young ladies who worked with me in New York made the stage manager for a living single aware that I was out there and that I, you know, I was available. I worked there. Then the Maynard, Maynard Virgil, who also worked in New York, he had me working on a couple of different shows. And so I went to the, the uh, it was Maynard's assistant who ended up working over there, asked me if I would come over and work with Tim. And I was like, of course, fine. We got along. It so it just happened that, you know, they liked me. Uh then they asked one day, would you mind doing a part on the show? I was like, oh, no problem. Whatever you guys need. The girls, like I said, were really nice, wonderful people. And it was so funny because when I went to do uh smart guy, so I go over to do the show. And, uh, you know, Jason and all the other guys, you know, we meet. And because I think a couple of us had already met in passing. And so Taj, so I met Taj for the first time. And so we're shooting this one day. And the next day comes with Tia and Tamara come up. They're like, um, no, I, you, I, you, you work on our show, don't you? And I'm like, Yes. Okay, I thought, see, I thought you, I'm sorry we didn't come over and speak to you sooner. <laughs> she, was like, she was like, I didn't know, she said, she said I see you around, but, I, you know, we don't, we just, because like you said, she and I never really, you know, we didn't work together, so we were never really formally introduced. Hmm. So they took it upon themselves to come over and, do, it, like I said, very nice young ladies, they took it upon themselves to come over and introduce themselves to finally go, okay. And then after that, of course, then, oh, would you like to do a part on the show? <laughs> kind of a thing, you know. That's a fun story. It's good to hear that it's such a nice group of people to work with. You know, that's always oh, good yeah. to hear about any show. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, Roderick, if I may compliment you for a moment as well, uh, I just want to tell you if, if sexy was Oreos, you'd be double stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Woo! That's the okay. proof I watched your show. I'm talking Living Single now. For anybody who doesn't know what the context is there, it's Living, yeah. living, it's living Single. 
That's Libby single. Oh man. And you had to say that to Queen Latifah. Yes. Yes. Talk to me about that scene. I got to hear about this story. Oh, my, you want, okay. Now, that is a very fun story. Now, I was also uh, um, a standing on that show when I first, you know, first couple of years I got out to California. I was John Hinton's standing. Oh. So, um, you know, I already knew. I already knew Kim Fields. I already knew Erica Alexander because we had worked together on the Cosby show. Uh, Kim Coles was was somewhat familiar with me because she went to high school with one of my best friends. T.C. Carson and I, we had met at a film festival. So I didn't know John. I I knew Dana, Queen Latifah, through me working in the music industry, uh, doing videos and things. So we knew each other in passing. So I came on the show to stand in for John to work with him. And so there were many times that I would be filling in for another actor who wasn't there. And it got to the point where, you know, I would go off and do other shows and, you know, couldn't be there. And John, John and I became kind of close. And it got to the point where it was like, well, why can't Rod come and work on this show? Just, you know, he, he goes to work so on other shows. Why can't he get an audition? So came to a point where came to a head. Few things came to a head at the time. And it was a, a stink was made about a few things. And I was one of them. So I got an, uh, an opportunity to audition for the show. I booked the role. Wonderful. John Hinton was one of the people. I Shout out to him. He didn't have to do this. He stood up for me and, you know, was my advocate saying that, you know, I should be on the show, which got to love somebody for that because, you know, not, not a lot of people do that. But the interesting thing about doing the show, I had a great time working with everybody. But I can't remember John's acting coach. And this was a great lesson I learned very early on, is that you have to... I. I learned that I have to be able to pay attention to everything around me and understand the job of television. And I say it this way. When you saw me do that scene, you couldn't really see my face, could you? No, I was trying to get nice, good screenshots that, that our folks are watching the video version of scene, but you kind of just bent over and disappeared. Yeah, because my, my head was down because I, yeah. I was looking at Queen Latifah who was sitting down there. So case in point, you know, scene came off. It got the laugh and everything we were supposed to get. After it was over, John's acting coach said, yo, that was a great scene. You know, good. You got the laugh and everything. Too bad nobody could see your face. And I was like, huh? He said, yeah. He said, when you were standing there, you looked down. And so your focus was down here where you should have been up and your eyes should have been going down. And I was like, Oh, my goodness. But here's the lesson. In television, I was an ancillary character. The main, the main characters, they had the shots of all the girls. I was just coming in, delivering a line just to keep the story along. So the director has so many things to worry about. He don't have time to try to coach me to tell me, oh, pick your head up. Hey, if I ain't pick my head up, that's not his problem. He's got more things to do. So I, that was 
a, a lesson that I had to learn. And you could say it's a costly lesson because it's a, it's a nice scene, but I can't use it. Yeah, very true. <laughs> I, I know we just talked about the director's got other things to worry about, but I am going to call the director there. I looked him up, Chuck Vincent, that's his name. I, I am going to say he should have he should have said something about that, though. That's a pretty noticeable flow to make for someone who's, you know, doing this, you know. But check this out. You can't. Chuck's my boy. Chuck's my boy. <laughs> that's my dude. That's what I met him. Chuck first hired me to be a stand-in on the Cosby Show. <laughs> so it's I can't it's say no, anything then. <laughs> no harm, no it's no, no harm, no foul. But but it's a lesson that I had to learn. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Nego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Have you ever watched a YouTube video and said you wish you could do what they were doing? Whether it's the filming, the production, the editing. Maybe you listen to your favorite podcast and you wondered how they put that show together. How they got that great sound quality. What gear they use. How much does it cost to get started? Or maybe you checked out a video or read a book about one of your favorite entrepreneurs and it made you say, I want to live that life. I want to do what they do. Then check out my podcast, Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm Rich Butler, and I've been making podcasts for almost two decades, speaking with experts across all fields to get to the bottom of the hows and whys of their achievements. Each week, I sit down with these amazing people who have carved their own path in life and share the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they rely on to create their content, the methods that they use to run their business, and the habits and trends that are part of their daily routine and their way of life. And all of that, of course, gets put together to make them successful. We pull back the curtain on the process to help you understand what these people do differently so that you can draw inspiration and get ideas and be inspired so that you can take action today. 
This podcast is inspiring, educational, it's enlightening, and most of all, it's a lot of fun. I want you to join me on this journey so that you can use the tools and advice shared in this podcast to level up your business or creative endeavors, giving you all the tips, tactics, and tools so that you can transform what you're doing from a side hustle into a full-time lifestyle where you can collect a paycheck for doing what you love. Check out Toys and Tech of the Trade wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the RageWorks Network at RageWorksNetwork.com for more info on this podcast and all of the many other great shows that we have on the RageWorks Podcast Network. That's Toys and Tech of the Trade with some assembly required. All right, so Roderick, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion now. And you played Regana Tosh on the yes. DS9 14th episode. Alien. Yes, <laughs> on the episode of Hippocratic Oath, very shifty alien doing some dirty deeds with Quark that are not done dirt cheap. Uh, so talk to me about how you got this role. Do you remember anything about the audition process? Oh, I remember everything. <laughs> um, I was with film artists and associates at the time. It, I do believe it was 1995-ish, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, when I did it. And I got the call to go to Paramount to audition. I can't, uh, for some reason, I cannot remember the casting director's name right now. He's was that Junie Lowry really, Johnson or Ron Serma? Ron Serma. Ron Serma. Okay. It was Ron Serma. Good man. Really good man. I really liked him. We had a really a good rapport. And he brought me in. You know, it, it, they, I just got the size when I got there. Looked at him for five minutes. Looked at him, was like, okay, I got some. For some reason, I really like enveloped the first, you know, I, you know, uh, I have my resources, you know, and I, I really put something into that, which I didn't understand, but he was very excited about what I was doing. And then the second part when Quark comes in and it busts me and I'm like, oh, oh, you know, what's it yeah. what is going on here? Then he I I kind of threw that away and he was like, no, whoa, 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 wait, stop, 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 stop. No, you had me in the first part. And then, <laughs> then you sound like a valley guy, you know, valley boy in the end of it. No, don't do that. Give me the all of that, the first part, give me that all the way through. And I was like, okay, go back. I give he said, that's what I'm talking about. That's what you got to call back. And he was like, I was like, okay. And he told me what time he's like that today, that day. So I was working at Kinko's in the Valley on Ventura and Laurel Canyon at the time. So I got a call to work and I was like, so we, there was a deal uh, with my boss. She said, anytime you have an audition, you go to your audition, you just call us, let us know what's happening. And you handle your business. Your job is always going to be here. Huh. So I call, I, and, and that was a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> I call, tell her I got a call back, and I tell her what it's for. She's excited. Okay, okay, great. Don't worry about it. Just do, do you know, come to work when you when you when you're done. So I go in there, and when I go into audition. There's a room full of people. I mean, some people I know, you know, some pretty well-known actors. One gentleman, Robert, I can't remember Robert's last name. He was on The Closer. Um, I forgot his name, but he ended up being on the episode also. But I, because I'd worked with him, with his theater company in uh, 
in LA. So I saw him and a bunch of other guys. And of course, you know, when you go in there with all those heavy hitters, they're like, oh, you know, young buck coming in here trying, you know, what are you, oh, what are you doing in here? Oh, you know, and I'm just like, hey, you know, I'm just trying to come in here, you know, just trying to work a little bit, you know. But unbeknownst to me, Renee Ajanu was the director hmm, for the yeah. episode. So I didn't know that until I got in the room. So, of course, Ron gives, gives me the, you know, he gives Renee the pitch. He's like, hey, you know, this guy here. Come, oh, Renee's like, oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so I actually, I'm reading with someone else, but I can see Renee out of my right peripheral the, the whole time I'm reading. And when I, you know, I'm doing my lines, I see him just like bubbling and just like, you know, who, you know, he's in his seat and just bouncing around and all this stuff. stuff. And he's like, ooh. And he's like, let's do that again. Let's do, yes, let's do that again. And we do it again. And he's like, and he goes, Roderick, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Grab, you know, that's one of the grabs. Thank you so much for coming. So thank you, sir. You know, leave. Next day, agent calls. Yo, you booked it. You got it. And I'm just like, I'm just, I'm floored because I am now within the pantheon of the Star Trek universe. Yeah. I call one of my best friends, David Johnson, who's a, uh, also a, a director. He's directed a bunch of films I was in. And he take, cause he's a trick. So he d- takes me through the whole thing. He said, okay, what you have to do now? He said, when you go, you know, I said, I told him what I'm going to be, you know, makeup and everything. He said, okay, what you want to do, you want to get yourself one of those portable cameras, you take it with you. He said, you document the whole process of the makeup, everything. Mm, yeah. He said, he said, this will be something that will be just priceless yeah. for, for, for time immemorial. Then he said, you know, just really, just really take it all in when you go there. And I was like, okay, great. So, um, I go there and I go for a test. And so they're doing a test for the costume, but um, I had to go for a costume fitting. So it was like a leather out, it was the outfit, but then it had this leather cape that I had on. But the actual cape they ended up making, it was patchwork leather and they ended up dying with a hood and everything on it. Very ominous, looked wonderful. I remember practicing with the cape to try to do something cool with it. So then I got a chance to sit in the office of Michael Westmoreland, the makeup guy. What is that office like? I've heard stories about the trailers, but what's that office look like? It's everything's in there. Everything. Everything's in there. Everything's in there. And you know, I'm I'm in the movies. I know I know of the legacy of him and his family, his yeah. father and his grandfather. You know, and so I we just start talking. Do you know he we said and the one thing you know that my parents always taught me, especially my dad. He was like, you know, if you want to learn about a person, ask them about their job. He said they would be just so happy to tell you what they do. And so I was fascinated, you know, very inquisitive. 
So I just start asking him all sorts of questions. He started telling me about his life and just how he started out doing movies and how, you know, how he'd been doing movies for so many years. And then it got to the point where he was on the road so much. He was trying to, you know, balance the family and business and everything. Then he said, when the whole Star Trek thing, he said, okay, I can shift to this. He said, he said, Rod, you don't know how it, it, what, what, what a difference being able to come home to dinner every night with your family makes for your life. And I never forgot him saying that. And just the, all the, just all the other, you know, just wonderful stories that he told me about <clears throat> on different movie sets. And, um, you know, it was like, oh, but like, oh, what's this from? And, you know, you know, cause you're in the office and you're, oh, oh, what's that? What's that? What's and he's like, oh, let me, oh, oh, that's a good one. It is a good, it did it, you know, and then of course, oh yeah. And we'll see what happened here. What, and then what people really don't know is, you know, it was what it, the museum it was, of was, Oh my goodness. I just sat, we talked, I, I kid you not, Matthew, I sat in there like over an hour and we just sat there, we're kicking for like over an hour, we're just talking. And then he was like, okay, well, you know, let me take you, go get your, um, uh, get your test. And so, um, and then that was a whole thing because um, I went to go get a test of the makeup. Hmm. So I've seen it's a three before, and a half. Right? Yeah. It's a three and a half hour makeup job. So when they did it the first time, because they had to take the picture that was on that ID screen when they pulled me up. So that is from the first, from the test. So when they did that, they didn't smack it and seal it to my face. It was on there. Oh, I gotta tell you, no, but here's, but here's the great story. Here's the great, the great, it's the great story and then it leads to the other part. So as I said to you, I was working at Kinko's and I was one of the managers there. So one day, Armin Shimmerman comes into the into the store. Now, of course, nobody knows what he looks like. <laughs> However, I'm very good with voices. So I'm at the register, and he says something to me, and he comes up to the register, and I go like, I lean on and say, are you on Star Trek? And he goes, oh, how'd you know? I said, I'm very good with voices. And he said, <laughs> uh, he was like, apparently so. <laughs> and so we became friendly with one another because he would come to Kinko's from time to time. So one night he came in there. I was like, Armin, what, you got to die and go to heaven in order to get an audition for the show? He said, Rod, I know what you mean. He said, my wife goes through the same thing and I'm on the show. <laughs> and he said, you know, so we had that conversation because when he found out I was an actor, then it was like, oh, okay. You know, of course, that bond. So that first test day, I go through the makeup and everything. Like I said, they didn't really adhere it to my face. So there were gaps. And one of the things they did tell me was be careful when you're going around because you're going to get overheated. You're going to sweat. Da, 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 da. So then um, the stage man, uh, the AD, Brian, he was leading me around, taking me places, and we happened to see Armin. And he was like, oh, you know, Armin, uh, this is 
Um, he said, uh, this is a gentleman who's going to be working with you, um, working with you tomorrow, blah, 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 blah. And I said, and he goes, oh, yes. And then I said, I said, Armin, I said, we actually, we've met before. And of course he goes, oh, really? He's <laughs> like, he was like, oh, really? Because of course I know people have, you know, said that before. And I said, ah, yes, sir. I said, I can mention one word and you'll know exactly who I am. And he said, and what is that, sir? He said, and what is that word, my, uh, uh, my friend? I said, Kinko's. He went, Rod! Oh, my goodness! He ran over to me, hugged me, and he was like, I knew it! I knew it! I knew it! I knew you get it! He, stopped. He, was just, he was so happy for me. He was just like, oh, man! He's like, yes, yes! He was, so, he was just over the moon for me. So, of course... Once again, he was giving me, uh, I uh, saying like, okay, make sure you stay hydrated. Don't do a lot of running around because you're gonna get sweaty. Of course, I didn't listen. So, <laughs> so I didn't listen. You know, they and I'm running out, and after a while, I start sweating. So I had, as you see, I had three sets of nostrils. So I started sweating out of two sets of my nostrils. <laughs> so it's it's. So there's water just rolling down my face and they're still trying to do the test. So they got to like dry me off and come over with a fan. They got to sit me in front of a fan and everything. So it was, it was really kind of funny the first day. It's allergy so season this, for Raganatosh. Yeah, right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was really kind of funny. So the next day I had myself together. One of the things that I was fasting that morning. So they gave me a bunch of really nice juices to keep me, Cool, and I took the 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 note of not a lot of movement, stay mm -hmm. by the fan. And one thing, let me say about Armin Sherman, he treated me like a prince. He he made sure he went to the crew and made sure he was like Rod's going to need this, 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 this. Make sure he has this. Da 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 da. Boom 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 boom. He needs this here. Da 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 da. Boom boom boom. He made sure that I had no wants whatsoever. And, and it was then he was like, Rob, would you like to rehearse? I said, oh, yes, I would love to rehearse. Well, let's rehearse. And I cannot thank him enough for the way he treated me. I mean, it was just absolutely wonderful. And unfortunately, you know, it. I think... His, the treatment I received from him and others on set kind of got Michael, uh, what, um, the guy who played Worf, what's his name? Michael Dorn? Yes, Michael Dorn. I think uh, he might have got a little miffed by that. Um, I mean, early on, things were fine with us. And uh, towards the end of the day, they were doing uh, his POV. And so he had to look at me going around the set and that, and you know, I was trying to be a helpful actor. And I was like, yo, I can do my movement for you, you know, so you won't have to fake it. And I said, you know, and he told me, uh, you know, I want you to get the hell out of here and get, take your makeup off and get the hell out of here. And I was like, Hey, hey I'm ready to move. I said, I'm ready to go whenever you guys are. Like, and I played it off like a joke and everything. The AD Brian later said, you know, I think maybe sometimes he was used to being the only guy. 
you know, on set and you come on and everybody's very amenable to you. He said, we kind of, you know, he's like, everybody kind of likes you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and it was, my scene was made of, I'm not want to say a big deal, but it was a bit of a thing for Brian, who was the AD that Renee was allowing him to direct my scenes. So it was kind of a big deal for him. So, and everybody, and everybody on the crew was very supportive in that effort. So there was, you know, I think there was just a little extra attention to certain things that were going on. So maybe it might've rubbed some, some people a little bit the wrong way. And so that, that's what happened. Well, you know, at that point, too, Michael Dorn had just come on to work on DS9 because he had just wrapped up TNG a little while ago. And I think maybe oh. by then he had might on the first movie. So I imagine it might have just been perhaps some growing pains. Maybe he was just, you know, who knows? Could have just been a cranky bad day. But I'm sorry to hear that was a rough experience with Michael that day. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, hey, everybody has their bad days. I mean, I've had mine. And, you know, it's one of those things. Um, one of the first gigs I had in L.A., I worked with Andrew McCarthy and in this film called The Courtyard. And I played a fireman. I had an under five. And I, you know, I was like, I had quick the fire spreading. And then I'm, you know, I'm out. But for some reason, he took it upon himself that it was playtime for him. So, you know, I got all the Megillah, the fire, everything, the 200 pounds of equipment, all the hoses are out here by the by the uh, pool. And every time I do go to do my line, he keeps moving further out, further out, further out, further out to mess up the shot and then blames it on me. And then he moves out so far one time that he makes me trip over, trip over one of the hoses. Now, see, the ironic thing at the time, my mom was there. Yeah, I brought it was it was a, my mom happened to be visiting me. So it was the first thing I, on the first movie I did in LA. And it was, I was like, hey, mom, you never watched me do anything. Come on and go. So when I get there, the crew's like, dude, you, you, brought, you brought your mom? I was like, yeah, you know, she was, they was like, dude, say no more, say no more. We got it covered. So Matthew, I come out, the crew's got my mom in a director's chair by the pool <laughs> with a little table with snacks and, and the little other little, another thing with beverages, cold beverages. And then a monitor here with a little umbrella over it. And it's like, they set it up and I'm like, you Joe, what? They're like, come on, dude, you brought your mom. I mean, come <laughs> on, come on, dude, you brought your mom. And I was like, thank you. But then to contrast that happens, you get treated like that. And then you work, with this person who I, you know, I liked his work, you know, that he treats you like this. But then, but here's, but here's the lesson I learned because I was upset because we're, we're actors. We're supposed to work together. Right. So I was in class at the time uh, with Tony Greco. Tony Greco is a person who was st- taught by Strasburg. So I was in that whole actor studio type of uh, uh, class situation. So I go back Monday and I'm complaining about, yeah, you know, he did this, this, that, you and and Tony said, "F you." I was like, "Huh?" I said, "What?" He said, "Rod, what says that someone has to be nice to you?" And I was like, "But he said, 
who said he has to be nice to you? And that was like a big lesson because you think, but that's not necessarily the case, the way this business is. You do work like Armin, and I've worked with a bunch of people who were wonderful, but then I've also worked with other people that, you know, hey, maybe they had some other, some, some else was going on. You know, and it wasn't such a great a great time. Or maybe they lost their passion for what they were doing because they, you know, it's not what it used to be. Who knows? But, you know, it's up and down. It's, it's just a lot of life lessons that you have to learn within this business. So right, let's talk about shoot day now when you're working on DS9 here. So number one, the sets are crazy and you're working on the promenade, which is an enormous set. And you're working on the promenade. Yes. With Armin Shimmerman, with Michael Dorn, and with the person who's also directing you, Renee. So talk to me about just yeah. again. I, by the way, I should mention you. Know, Renee is my favorite. Uh, I think you know, his character Oda is the favorite of all my Star Trek characters ever. But uh, you know, tell me about shooting time and what that's like for you. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, we started early in the morning, um, three and a half hour makeup job, and this the day of shooting is when they cemented the <laughs> the oh, it was like it was skin. Oh my goodness! Any any little move, I it would move, and um, the makeup artists on that show are phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I took pictures of every stage of it. Um, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Then to have the makeup on, and then put on the costume, the performance was it was room service because i was already the voice that i didn't plan that the way the voice came out that came out organically you know and i mean it was so wonderful to shoot and just to watch how they they it it's wonderful to watch a show that they know exactly what they're doing how to do it They've been, they are such a well-oiled machine that it's, and it's a, I love it when a crew has a shorthand with one another. Oh, the thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We got the the, the other thing or the other thing. You know, and so it was just so good to listen to that, to listen to how the jib operator was moving with in concert with the other camera to watch me that sweeping shot that comes in and around and then where it comes and then the other one picks me up coming through the back. It was just wonderful to just watch how they, they caught all of that. And, um, and the sets and the funny thing about it, sometimes you would think that, you know, on a regular set, it's only this part over here. That's actually a piece, but no, it's, it's over there too. You're just happy to be, in the middle of it. And there's then there's maybe an opening over here that you can walk out of, but it's an actual full set with things that work. And so it's always fun for me to walk on a set like that. And especially when it's gadgets and stuff, and then you actually go up to where the, the, the board is and you look at, oh, so that's what it actually really looks like. So it was so fascinating to do that. And you just work with Armin was really cool. And like I was telling How you. How serendipitous is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
and 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 we just had and we had a great time doing it. And I learned from him uh, with the makeup on how you should, um, and then the acting with that makeup on the conservativeness of movement. Yeah, I talked about that earlier, how, you know, transitioning from theater into TV, how it's, you know, here in theater, here on TV, here in film. So it's here on, on film, here on TV, rather, but also now with makeup. So it's like, what, like a tiny little thumbnail? Oh, yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. It's, it's all in there. And so I watched him and t- I was like, ah, okay, just lean in a little bit. You don't have to do too much because everything else is working for you. Because here's the thing, what we have to understand, you see all of this. So you're already, you've already bought in. You've already bought a ticket for the ride. Yeah. So you, so only thing you want is, is me to give you the stuff, just to give it to me. And so you're, you're already ready. Come on, come on, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And, and I delivered just like, oh, yes, wonderful. So we have to understand that half the job is done already. So we just have to naturally just lean into it. And I learned that from Renee, not to overdo it. Um, Because one of the things I, like I told you, Renee didn't necessarily direct my scene, but his AD, Brian, he let direct the scene. But Renee was there the whole time. And then he was also in the scene. So, and I had to also remember the note that Ron had given me about the ending of that when I get busted, you know? So it was, it was, you know, it was a lot to think about and it was a lot to concentrate on and make, because, you know, when you're doing that show, you want to be there, present and doing your best work. Because everybody's going to see. So it was just, you know, I really wanted to be disciplined and focused on what I did. I mean, I remember by the time I left there at one o'clock in the morning from being there like at six in the morning, I was totally worn out. But it was a great experience. And when it came out, I was very happy with it. Did you watch it it the first time it aired? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Of course. All my family did and stuff. And it was so funny because I didn't tell them, you know, who exactly I was. And my aunt was like, oh, I knew it was you when you came on the screen. I was like, how did you know? She said, I know my nephew when I see him. <laughs> I was like, okay, Auntie Callie. But it was a great time. It was a great time. Great time. So that's your time on Star Trek. But, of course, your career is far more than just that, as we've already discussed today. And there's one other thing I want to talk about with you, because uh, I saw this on IMDb, and I'm curious to know what your involvement was. Uh, I saw that you worked with 40 Acres and a Mule, which is Spike Lee's film company. And I think the credit is for Miracle of Santa Ana. So I'm curious to know uh, what you did with that company and if you got to actually spend any quality time with Spike Lee. <laughs> oh, I've spent lots of time with Spike. Um, actually... Um, if you go back on my resume, there's a film called The Session and also a film called Drop Squad. Uh, Drop Squad, Spike was the executive producer for that film. It came out in 1994. Drop Squad Pictures was an organization that myself, uh, four brothers from Howard and one gentleman uh, from Hampton started back in 1989. 
Uh, we did the that um, the short film, the session. Uh, Spike saw it. Many people saw it, you know. But then a couple years later, he decided he wanted to to um, executive produce the film. From that point on, from '94 on, Drop Squad produced mostly everything that Spike did. Now, a lot of people don't know that they yeah, we were that. the we were the production company behind Forty Acres that was doing a lot of the work. Um, so I've known Spike since the '80s uh, when he started out. I auditioned for um, when I first met him when I auditioned for School Days back in the 80s, back in like 86 or 87 or something like that. So um, I've worked, Spike, we've worked, I've worked with him, Miracle St. Anna, Passing Strange, uh, a plethora of commercials. Um, He and I, um, we've done some, I've worked with him on casting a couple of commercials uh, that he's done. Uh, like I said, I've worked, I've worked closely with him for a number of years. Good guy. Um, you know, 40 acres is, uh, a part of the family, a part of the family of black filmmakers that I was a part of coming up in, uh, in the eighties in New York, especially in Brooklyn. So, um, I have a long history with, uh, Spike Lee and his whole family. Well, I got to press you a little bit more on this here because you can't spend that many years with Spike Lee and not learn something, not have a little bit of him rub off on you. So tell me, at least give me something here. What's like something that he's, you know, this is similar to the question I asked you at the start of the show. What's something that he told you, some piece of advice about anything that stuck with you, you still think about today, maybe you still use it today? Hmm. Well, there's a couple of things I learned. And Spike, it's not always what Spike says to you, but it's about how you watch it. Hmm. And so not about the words the, necessarily, more about the tone sometimes. Yeah, well, it's about the tone and then what you see him do. Like, did you have you seen the that new documentary, The Captain? I have not seen that yet, no. You need to watch it. Uh Spike executive produced it and he got Randy Wilkins Randy Wilkins to direct it. He's one of our young filmmakers who came through 40 Acres. And I, you know, I work with Rand. <clears throat> but I say all that to say is I watched Spike, how he works with people and how he doesn't give it to you, but he shows you the pathway of how to do things. One of the things that, what, that was very significant for me watching him in the beginning, he demystified the whole film process. Every film that he, his first five films, there's a companion book to each one of them. I read each one of those books because it demystified how movies were made. Because for a while, especially in the black community, you didn't have, you know, years ago, Oscar Michelle and different people were doing, you know, doing things years ago. But in the eighties, there weren't a lot of black films that were really happening. And so when he wrote those books, demystifying it, and then he made a, because there is a, we call it Spike Lee University. There were all the people that have worked for Spike over the years. What he did was, if they say, okay, this guy's the grip. Okay, yes, he's the grip. But then you got you to gotta back him up with a Black person that, can, that you're going to teach him how 
to be a grip also. So he had a black person shadowing every other person, every person on the set so they could learn. Wow. So you're really paying forward to- every suit. Yeah. You know, it was like, he, he made sure that everybody that learned, he was, he's responsible. Sp- Spike is single-handedly responsible for a number of people, of, of black people, black and brown people being in the unions to, to this very day. And he's always been an advocate like that. And so I give him so much props. Like I said, he helped demystify what a film was when you, when he, when, you know, you see She's Got to Have It. It's like, wow, that was just like, you know, the thing. And so then it was like, okay, well, we can do that too. And so we went ahead. And our group got together. We was like, okay, so we're going to start doing things. And so, you know, he just he just led the charge, man. He just really led the charge for for uh, for filmmakers. Now, can I nerd out with you for a few moments here on Spike Lee films? Because I don't really get to do this in the show ever. Uh, but, you know, what's your favorite Spike Lee film? And I'm, I'm going to go first just because, uh, yeah, I want to I see if I'm going to change your, your thoughts here. But I, I go ahead, go ahead. You know, I, I think Malcolm X is an amazing epic of a film. But personally, for me, I find Do the Right Thing to be the one I like to analyze the most. So I think for me, that's my favorite because there's so much meat hidden inside that film. I feel like that's that's to me like mm, to me, I think that is. Yeah, that's like the one for me that does it. What, what about you? You know. Do the Right Thing was wonderful. I enjoyed it. Uh, they started shooting that right when I moved to New York in 88. Um. But I got to go back to the first one. She's got to have it. For some reason, I just fell in love with that film. And it was black and white. It did everything that was a, a film was supposed to do. A beginning, a middle, and an end. And it had complex characters, complex issues. But then it had beauty within it. I thought the cinematography, I thought Ernest's cinematography was simplistic yet beautiful. And uh, I think he really, he and Spike really worked together. It was one of those first times where I saw Black people on film and I just say, that they were really beautiful. They were shot, you know, they were shot well. They they looked good. The lighting was well done. It was, it was, it was like it was almost um, a love letter. Yeah, I, I think for me, I personally like a lot of Spike's earlier stuff just because I feel like, to me, one of the biggest things about his earlier work is the fact that there was always conflict involved in pretty much all those things, you know, um, but it's not just the conflict that's happening. That's the premise of the movie. That, that's the narrative. You know, it, it's more like you're seeing the inner conflict of all the characters and you're seeing their turmoil and also seeing a lot of the, the intricate, complicated relationships people have with each other. Uh, and that can just go on. You know, I could, I could wax poetic about all that stuff, but I feel like, you know, uh, again, do the right things for me, like that great encapsulation of what Spike Lee does best. Uh, get on the bus. I think it's kind of the same, same way. Oh, as yeah. oh yeah. get on. And, and that's, I think get on the bus is an underrated film. Absolutely. I think it's and I, I would and never I, say it's underrated, but it's a great film. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I do, and I do have to say, I loved Malcolm X. Yeah. You know, I got a chance to work one day on it, and it was just really amazing to watch Angela and Denzel work. It was just like, 
What a transformation Denzel did. And he's business. Hmm. He's he is about business. And you know, when you see someone like that focused, you just make sure you stay out of his way and make sure that, you know, if you have something to do for him, you make sure you do it and then get out of the way so he can come in there and do his thing. And it it's it was it was good to to watch a consummate professional like that. And shout out to, to the upcoming film that Spike Lee's doing, Prince of Cats, which is based on Ron Wimberly's comics. I'm a fan of his artwork, and I've, I've known Ron for some time. Not really that really? well, but uh, you know, he went to the same art school I went to, so I knew him through that. And I got to meet okay. him at Comic-Cons and stuff, and like such a really cool dude and great artist. And I'm so legitimately happy that like Spike Lee found out about him and found out about what he does. Because uh, you know, if you don't know, Prince of Cats is going to basically be like uh, his version of Romeo and Juliet that he did. And it's like an urban Brooklyn style setting for Romeo and Juliet. It's so cool. I cannot wait to see what really? they're going to do with that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to. I'm, I'm in. I'm very, very. I'm in. Yeah. I cannot wait I'm for that. I'm in. <laughs> okay. Cool. I'm in for that one. Definitely. Wow. Okay. Cool. Right, so, Roderick, you know, as we come to a little bit more of a close now, let's uh, rapid fire some stuff at you right now. So, you can't okay. think too hard about these. Just got to answer right away. Uh, okay. Even though they're going to probably be really hard to answer. So let's see how okay. this goes. But so first thing for you, best day on a set, worst day on a set. Best day on a set. Ah, doing the film Drop Squad. Um, <laughs> we got rained out the actual scene. I was it's a actual scene. I was supposed to and character I was supposed to play. The whole family reunion got rained out for the whole weekend. So they had to cut that scene and redo it. So the person who was supposed to play the character I ended up playing in Drop Squad couldn't come back that Tuesday because he had booked something else. So one of the things I had told the producer and the director before I got there, I told them I knew the whole script. And they were like, excuse me? I said, no, I know the whole script, every character. They were like, okay, you know, they're good friends of mine. Uh, and they were like, okay, so when... That happened, they were like, hey, Rod, we need you to step in. So I created that character with Butch Robinson saying one word to me. He said, bad doo-doo maker. I was like, okay. So I so I went in there with the scene with Eric LaSalle, so I improved everything. And it came out, that scene came out to be one of the pivotal moments in the film. And then it's just in the making of the film because it uh, turned out to be a cast and crew favorite of everybody. And it kind of, within the production of the film, kind of pushed me into a different uh, stratosphere. So that would be the best day. The worst day on set, I would say, was when I was doing a Budweiser commercial out in California. And we were doing stunts. The stunt was jumping out of a plane when it's taxiing down the runway. Um, and the producers were really not good. They were trying to intimidate folks. Um, <clears throat> there were a few people that were on the, on the production that uh, were actors who this was their first commercial 
fortunately, myself and one other guy, uh, Tom McComas, who was a stuntman and also one of the actors in, in the piece, you know, we had, you know, we'd been around the block for a while. And these producers trying to tell us that, oh, this isn't a stunt. This isn't a stunt. Or, you know, this is this and trying to intimidate people. And I was just like, no, this is a stunt. If I jump out of this plane, it's a stunt. Um, you know, I had to stand up for myself as an actor. And it was one of those times where, you know, an actor shouldn't have to have to fight every single day to get treated with the respect that they're supposed to get. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a situation of they told me, well, if you want breakfast, you got to get here two hours early. I was like, no, that's not what the rules are. When I get here, my call time, my breakfast is supposed to be there. And, and then they also, you know, they try to cheat you out of hours, you know, when they don't, when, when the production, when you work with an unprofessional company that don't know how to schedule their day properly, then when they've realized that they put themselves out and they're, and they're like, oh, well, you can take a whole hour now for lunch. You know, but previously saying, oh, no, you only get a half hour for lunch. And then at the last minute say, oh, well, you can have an hour. I said, oh, no, 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 no. It's not my fault that you don't know how to prepare and be ready. I said, so my half hour ends here and I st- I'm back on the clock again. And that was one of those things I had to constantly fight with the producers and the AD for the two to three days that we shot that. And that was one of the that was the first time I'd in. Really? Well, no, I won't talk about that. Uh, uh, that was, you know, one of those days where it um, was was difficult. Hmm. It was difficult. So how about a moment from your performing career that was the most challenging, but also ultimately became the most rewarding? Hmm. I did this play called The... Um, Lifetime on the Streets. Uh, I can't remember the author of it. But anyway, I played this character called Streetwalker. Now, I first saw this play at the Negro Ensemble Company in New York City. So this is about 90, I want to say 95-ish. Okay. So listen to the cast of the play. <clears throat> Vanessa Williams, as in Vanessa Williams from uh, Melrose Place and all those, not the singer, but the actress, Vanessa Williams. Um, you know, they're in a Karen Molina White. There's a, if, you, if you saw the pictures of the people, you were like, oh my goodness, oh, oh, oh. I, Black Hollywood was in effect. And this particular character I played was very challenging because the character's friend had been killed in a movie theater, in a gay movie theater. So he was talking about the whole experience that he was having. And it was a very challenging role because, you know, you don't want to be stereotypical with any of the you want to give the the text the gravitas that it it 
it, it requires. And I remember this one particular night. Now, they, we, we did it at Maskers uh, in, um, it was uh, in the Fairfax area. And all of Black Hollywood was there. The cast of Different World and a bunch of other shows, they were all there. And it was dinner theater. And so, you know, with dinner theater, there's a lot of clink, clink and all that sort of stuff. And so I go up there and, of course, I'm into my monologue. And, you know, it's the clink, you hear the clink, clink and everything. But the thing with the character, you think that he's going to go this way. And he ends up going to the left. And the significance of that was I heard the air leave the room. All noise ceased. Mm. I felt I had the audience in the palm. They went to the right. They went to the left. They, they, Matthew, it was one of the things that, and I knew, I knew it was something significant where Nobody clapped until after I left the stage. And it was one of those. And then it then it just became a roar to and a bunch of people came up to me. I didn't know everybody who was there that night. But there was a couple people who, you know, prominent actors in town that I saw later or maybe a year or two or so later, hey, yo, I remember you. You were in that show. You were in that show at Masters. What was was Lifetime on the Streets, right? Yo, man, yo, I really dug what you, you know, and that happened a bunch of times. I'm like, you know, I'm at an audition. Um, excuse me, um, did you do something? And so to me, when, like, kind of like back to when I was talking about in the beginning about understanding the acknowledgments, when you get fellow actors, your peers that come up to you and say something to you about the work that you're doing, that's, that's, that's the reward. It's not about the flashy stuff. That'll come, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when other actors who are, you know, they're, they're in pursuit of the craft. When they come up to you and they sincerely, yo, I really, I really, because I'll do the, I will be the first one. I've done it to many, I've, I've made friends because I've seen actors and like, oh my goodness, man, I just wanted Robert Loja. I waited on him when I was in, at work, worked at uh, Banana Republic and didn't, didn't say anything until after we finished, I said, I really love your work. He was like, oh, you're an actor. And then when I told him that, he wanted to have a conversation. So, you know, it's that thing when, where another actor, another artist comes to you and talks to you about what we do. That, oh, man. Mm. Whew, it's nothing like it, man. Yeah, that sounds like a great moment. And I, I love that story. And. You know, not to go on a tangent, but I'm about to, because I want to bring this back to what I was saying about Spike Lee a little bit ago. And, uh, you know, there's a word I wanted to say, but I just 
forgot it because my brain sometimes just goes funny like that. But, you know, I was talking about the inner conflict and the turmoil of characters and hearing your story about this show kind of reminds you of that. And it's not just that it was the conflict, the turmoil, uh, turmoil rather. Uh, it's the identity that's inherent within the characters in Spike Lee films. And when I say identity, yeah. not just the identity of what was, what is essentially their, their inner monologue. So that kind of thing, more the fact that, you know, Spike Lee is directing people of color and their story is a very different experience than the average white person film. And, you know, hearing you talk about this play, which again, I'm not super familiar with. I don't really know much about it at all other than what you've just told me about it. But, you know, to have a person of color and also having this inner conflict of the person that they know dying in a gay movie theater, you know, that's like a culture clash in a lot of ways too. So. You know, right. Oh, especially really in the black community. Of course. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that was the conflict because then you, I can't be stereotypical. Yeah. How could I? That is, that would be, that would be a slap in the face to, to everybody. I mean, you're basically trying to honor two different communities, trying to honor people of color and trying to honor the LGBTQ community. And that's, yeah, that's wrong. You got to do it because I have friends, relatives, (laughs) you know? And, and so it was because lifetime, all those characters in the play were people that you would meet on the street, that it was, it was basically how we would always describe the play as, if you were walking down the street, this happens just to be a, the story of the person you just passed. Mm. You just didn't get the whole story, but this is that person. Oh, you see that person? Oh, they're homeless. Oh, they're doing bottles. But ah, he has a story. Oh, that woman over Oh, she looks like she's got it together. Oh, but then uh, this is something that's happened with her. Oh, she's married and her husband's not really checking for her. And so it's these stories on the street that you pass by. But But then the thing is, you pass by these people every day and you don't know what's going on with them. That's some powerful stuff. And, you know, throughout this interview, I've asked you a bunch of questions about things like, you know, advice someone gave you or things that someone told you, stuff like that. And this is going to be, I guess, the culmination of those, because what is the most valuable thing someone ever told you about life or about acting that you still think about and use today? Mm-hmm. Wow. There's a couple of things. Um, Richard Gant, the actor, auditioned me for my first play when I was about 15 or, yeah, when I was about 16 years old. So I met him when I was 16. I saw him again my sophomore year in college when he was on tour with Sam Jackson doing Home. Then fast forward in 1994 something, I saw him again in in, uh, Los Angeles, California when I was working at Kinko's. And he was like, you stuck with me. That's what you want to do. So one of the things we ended up working on a film, he said to me, he was like, how old are you? And I was in my thirties at the time. He was like, now nah, you haven't hit your stride yet. He said, look, he said, when you get in your forties, your fifties and whatever, he said, you will continue to work constantly. And what I became to understand what he was talking about is that when you get to a certain stage in your career as an actor 
You know, when you're first starting out, you're going like, you're testing me. Is it here? It's here. It's here. It's here. It's here. No. The age I am now, I know it's right there. So there's a comfort that comes with that. There's a confidence that comes with that. There's a introspection that comes with maturing as an artist where I can sit comfortably within myself and be. Whereas when I was a younger actor, I was hoping to get there or, or maybe was relying on tricks. Because, you know, we actors, we got a lot of tricks we do. So he taught me how to, he, his mentorship taught me how to sit and be comfortable within who I am. Now, um, another lesson that I learned from James Pickens, who uh, is on Grey's Anatomy. He plays uh, the chief doctor there. I've known, I've known Pick for years. He was also with the Negro Ensemble Company. And I asked him years ago, how do you, how do you stay in it? How do you, what, what is it that you have to do in order to stay in this and stay focused? He was like, you have to find your spiritual base. Hmm. He said, because when you find that, everything else will come from there because the business that we're in is extremely fickle, extremely fickle. Like I said to you before, the things you think you're going to get, you don't get the things you don't get, or the thing you get the things you get the things you don't think you're going to get, and then vice versa. And it's topsy turvy. It's you know, it's upside down day, whatever. Or you know, you're wearing green this one day, but blue's the color, and so you miss out on that job. So there's no rhyme or reason. But he told me that if you have a spiritual base, you won't be rocked by those things, you know, because it, you know, it, I think Tom Hanks said it the best when he was on the inside the actor's studio. He said, you really, you, you got to really love what you're doing because that love of this, of this art is going to sustain you because you don't, you don't get into this business because you want to be famous or you want to be a movie star and rich. No, that's not going to sustain you because that ain't going to help you when you got, when Matthew, I remember in 2000, February of 2000, I had $75 in my bank account. And what I would do every morning would go, uh, not Runyon Canyon, but uh, up in Laurel Canyon and walk in the mountains. And I would go up there and pray, walk and pray and meditate every morning. And this one morning, I was like, Lord, what are we going to do? And it was because I had that that spiritual, that 
spiritual base, I was able to have faith because that week I had an audition for a Budweiser commercial that I told you about. Mm -hmm. Then I got the call back with $75 in my bank account. And that's the only thing I could hold on to. Hmm. So when you when you do this, it's got to be more than I want to be famous. I want to be rich and famous. I want to be a star and stuff like that, man. Because that ain't going to help when you got to really dig deep down and keep going. I mean... Matthew, do you realize how many people give up? There's so many, I mean, and talented people too. It's a rough journey and not everybody can handle it. Exactly. And I mean, and it, 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 it makes people go crazy. You see, you see some of the things that happened recently or, or in years past that happened to people in this business and people want to, you know, toss folks to the side and it's rough. Because the thing is what a lot of people don't understand, where acting is the only business that you are the instrument itself. You're not once removed from what you're doing. It's you. It's personal. So when people, an actor, check this out. A civilian could not deal with one year's of rejection that an actor has to go through. A year of rejection for an actor is a lifetime of rejection for a civilian. And see what happens to civilians when they get rejected, what happens to them. But it happens to us constantly. And it's not saying we don't, there's like saying, no, we don't like you. I had, I have a friend, um, a good, a well-known actress where and she's a gorgeous woman they told her she wasn't pretty enough who are you to tell who who are you to tell somebody you're not to who stand you're not pretty enough and you got to sit with stuff like that hmm. or you're too fat or you're this you're that i don't like you because because here's the thing sometimes folks on the other side they're, they take it personal. Directors, casting directors, they take it. And we're just coming in wanting to to avail ourselves because this is what we love. This is what we want to do. Yeah, you know, so it's a rough folks I talk to, it's always the ones who make it. They're the ones who are passionate about it. And they're doing it essentially art for art's sake. You know, they're doing oh, it yeah. for, this, for the, the journey itself of acting and for themselves. You know, finding something yeah. within themselves to make it matter. Yeah. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. It's... uh. It's uh, it's not for everybody, but I love, man, I love the fact that this is what I'm able to do for a living. I love it. I mean, you know, I'm a working actor. I didn't ask to be a star. I wanted to be to work and make a living at what I love doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to, I've been able to do that. So, and I continue to do that. That's kind of the basis for this show too, to bring this back full circle. And, you know, it's to talk to folks like you who are the true working backbones of the industry. Cause without you guys, the stars need someone to elevate them up there. And it's up to you guys to do that. So, you know, it's very true when I say it. And so I'm always happy to talk to, you know, no matter what the person's done in Star Trek, whether it's one gig or 18 gigs or whatever, it's always important. It's always a story. Oh, yeah. So 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's why that, and that's one of the reasons why I was happy to do that because of the fact, and I, cause I listened to one of your other podcasts, uh, the young lady who did passenger, passenger 57. Uh, Alex Thatcher. Yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, because there are those stories and I'm always fascinated by those stories because I always like to read about other actors. Like, you know, I've read um, Dick Van Dyke's autobiography, which I thought was fascinating. I'm, um, I also have Debbie Reynolds. She's just like, you know, she was one of my favorite, the MGM, that whole thing. So, you know, I like to listen and read about who came before me and what was their journey and their experiences, because you can always glean so much, you know, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's other people that have come before you that can teach you these lessons. And, you know, like my dad always said, you know, a, a smart person learns from other people's mistakes. <laughs> I was like, got it. I think that's the most valuable piece of advice right there. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He said that to me about my brother because my brother blew his scholarship off to college. And then when he did that, he just looked at me and said, you know, a smart person learns from other people's mistakes. And I know you're a smart person. And I just looked at him and was like, got it. <laughs> that is our lesson for the day, folks. If you take anything away from this interview, that's the one right there. Uh, Roderick, let's, let's bring this full circle right now, though. And let me ask you our final question here. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Man, people like you. You know, um, I really had no idea the breadth and just the the strength and of everything Star Trek. Um, you know, I got something through my agent a number of years ago where someone was asked me if I had the trading cards. And I was not aware that there are Star Trek trading cards. Oh, yeah. And they said, he was like, do you have your cards? I was like, my, my, I, so I'm on the trading card? That's cool. That's, I mean, and, you know, it, what, one of the things is just like, you know, like I learned through my friends that these folks are loyal. They're really dedicated to this. And, man, I mean, the show was only on for three years. The original show was only on for three years. But the impact that it made, you know, I didn't realize until I was older that it had only it was only on for such a short period of time because of the fact the reruns all the time, I thought it was, you know, still going on until, you know, they made the uh, the newer versions. But it's something that's enduring. And so to be within the pantheon of the Star Trek universe, just I mean, it just it, it I mean, it's it's great. I mean, like I said. I really enjoyed like sitting. I got a chance to sit down with Michael Westmore, one of the best guys in the makeup game in the movie industry. I mean, who took time with me to sit and talk to, to a kid who was just fascinated by the stuff and, and gave me his time. I mean, who does that? He's a very busy man, but he took the time because he saw that I was fascinated and that's the whole thing, Matthew, about other artists I've met. Michael Wetsmoreland. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, okay, of course, now, the gentleman who um, did the movie Hairspray. John Waters. John Waters. John Waters. 
I worked on um, worked on that film. He saw that I was interested in film. So, you know, he was like, oh, you can look through the monitor. You know, he, like Michael, took time. Oh, you're interested in this? Come here. Let me show you something. And it was like that on the set of Star Trek. That it was a whole collaborative effort. And so you see, now I understand why people are so dedicated to it because so much goes into that whole world. I mean, and they really painstakingly go the extra mile, the, you know, the wardrobe, the, the, the makeup. It, like I said, it was something to, I can go back now. And I was like, you know, I did that in 95. I can go back and look at those pictures and I show people this stuff now. Like, um, I put something up on IG, I think a year or two ago. And it was like the anniversary of me doing it. And me, I put, it was on IG and Facebook and everybody, oh my goodness, you did, oh. And it was like, I didn't know you did that. Oh my goodness. And I was like going, oh, you did? And I was like, yeah, you know? And so it, I mean, and there were other people that are seen for the first time. Like, you did Star Trek? I didn't know. Oh my goodness. And then other people, because then you know how people will tag it and they'll share it and share it and share it. Yep. So there's I got a lot of other people coming on go like, oh wow. You know, people I didn't know from other parts of the country or whatever. I didn't know you were on Star Trek. Oh my, that must like you, that must have been a great experience. <laughs> and it was. It really, it really was a great experience. So that that is one of the things. The, one of the things I, I hold on to from that particular, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, just kind of bring it back what you just said too. you know, the fact that uh, so many people have been willing to take the time with you to teach you and show you things. And I, I appreciate you doing that today with us as well. And with our entire audience, because you've given us a lot of gifts today, given us a lot to think about, you know, you had a lot of great stories, a lot of really excellent insight into things. And, you know, I don't get to say this enough because unfortunately as progressive as Star Trek is, to be quite honest, there's not a ton of black actors who did 90 Star Trek and even then who had like big major roles. And I've had right. a chance to talk to a good number of them, but their experiences in the industry are so different. And it's amazing to hear that. So, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that you took this time to tell us all about that and, you know, your life experiences, everything else, all your professional work as well. So thank you so much, Roderick, for talking with us today. Matthew, my pleasure. I One of the things I think is very important that I pass on the knowledge because someone passed it on to me. They took the time as we were talking, you know, they took the time to show me things. And I've learned that interesting thing. I found out something last year when my mom passed that this young man, he had, uh, he, you know, it said something. Oh, I just was talking about Roderick Gard the other day in an interview I was doing. And talking about how he inspired me. I'm like going, I inspired you. And then I kind of looked the gentleman up and saw that I was friends with him on Facebook and all the, the plethora of things that he did. He wrote, acting, writer and everything, all, all these different things. And I hit him on Facebook and I said, I'm very humbled that you said that I inspired you, but how could I have inspired you? He said, he said, when I was 12 years old, you were performing at this one place and you were doing poetry. And he said, man, you made it look cool. 
And he said up for it. So at 12 years old, I said, I wanted to do poetry too, because I saw you doing it and it looked cool, you know, and, and, and everybody liked what you were doing. And I was just like, wow. So here's the thing. None of us knows the impact that, you know, unbeknownst to me, the kids in the audience, I never met, I ne- I've still never met this gentleman, but something I did inspired him because of the fact of a talent that God put in me. And I call that a, the gift mm. because we never know as artists what people are going through. We don't know what day they're going, what struggles they are. And I've also been approached before when a woman said to me, she said, you know, before I heard you sing, I didn't have the Christmas spirit. But since, since I heard you sing, now I have the Christmas spirit. And I talked to my cousin Byron about that. I said, you know, that's really special, man. I said, because we don't know where these people are coming from. And I said, but for maybe the time that they come, the hour or two or whatever, that they come see us perform, maybe something we do inspires them makes their life a little brighter it makes them feel like ooh i have energy to keep going or whatever it does to re- give them refresh them and you know whatever that is a gift from god to, that that you're able to you're actually able to change the molecular structure in someone's brain by something i've done that is amazing to me I'm going to mess you up right here, Roderick, because I'm going to make you take a step back from your life for a minute here. And what you did for that 12-year-old person who you inspired is what Sammy Davis Jr. did for you when you were 11. And oh, yeah. that, that right there, that's, that's power, right? So you, you've paid it forward in your life, and I'm very lucky the fact that I can say I've got now this time with you that's going to be out there on the audio world, on YouTube, so people can find you and keep hearing your stories and keep hearing all that. So it's we're getting the message out there. Amen. It's great. It's Thank great. you. Thank you so much, Roderick. I oh actually I have a film that's coming out. Oh, go ahead. Yes, please tell us. Yes, I have a film. It's called If My People. It will start stream. Well, it'll be on sale starting next month. You can go to ifmypeoplethemovie.com. W www.ifmypeoplethemovie.com. You can buy the DVD. It's a movie that um, talks about. Uh, basically, the premise of the film is a pastor has a a vision, a dream of, he says, 40 days hence, where basically he has the vision. He puts it out, uh, puts a, a uh, speech out on YouTube, talks about bringing everyone together, uh, all the races together under church. Because one of the things that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X said at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. So basically what this film is talking about is bringing the races together under Christ. It's a faith-based film. I uh, play Deacon Lou. I'm like the second lead in it. Also, Anthony Sean Vaughn uh, plays um, uh, Pastor Lev, who plays who is um, the lead. And also Mark David Kennerly is the writer and director of the film. And it's a wonderful film. Like I said, it's coming out uh, September. So by the time this episode airs, that movie is going to be already out. So everybody who wants to check it out can check the show notes in the description below. We're going to have links to where you can go to the official website as well as hopefully places you can watch it. You can stream it wherever you're going to get it. So make sure you do not miss it out.
Right. Make sure you do not miss it. That's that's the way to say that word. Make sure you don't miss it, folks. <laughs> I'll leave him that blooper in. I can't cut that one. I can't cover that one. Well, thank you so much, Roderick. This has been wonderful. So really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Matthew. I really, really enjoyed it. I had a wonderful time. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.